You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello and welcome to the Heart Sounds podcast for April 2023. I am your host, Shelley Wood, the managing editor at TCTMD. This is the podcast where I tell you about some of the top news of the month gone by and as a bonus, let you listen in on some of the interviews the TCTMD reporters did while pulling together those stories. After a very busy March, April has been somewhat quieter, although reporter Mike O'Reardon took a hop across the pond to bring you some news from the European Heart Rhythm Association meeting. Here at home, Todd, Neil and I were still making our way through some take-homes from the Technology and Heart Failure Therapeutics meeting known as THT in late March, and I'll tell you about one of Todd's feature stories from that meeting here soon. As I've mentioned before on this podcast, all of these interviews are typically done with a print story in mind, so I hope whatever you hear today piques your interest to read the articles in full on TCTMD. Let's jump in. I want to start with a story from Laura McEwen that I think offers a ray of hope for patients who lose weight, then grow discouraged to see it creeping back on. Laura's story stemmed from a systematic review and meta-analysis led by Jamie Hartman Boyce of the University of Oxford, England, published in Circulation, Cardiovascular Quality and Outcomes. As Laura writes, despite the fact that the studies included overweight and obese patients following a broad range of in-person and virtual behavioral weight management interventions, one thing they all had in common was that the small improvements in cardiometabolic risk factors that they achieved by losing weight actually persisted even when some of those pounds came back. In all, the researchers included 124 weight loss studies looking at one or more cardiometabolic outcomes, with at least 12 months of follow-up, with the intervention programs themselves averaging a little over seven months. They found that participants who'd been randomized to the weight loss interventions saw improvements in blood pressure and lipid profiles compared to the control groups, and those persisted anywhere from one to five years later. Regaining even a kilogram of weight, although it eroded the difference between the intervention and control groups, did not erase it altogether. Niha Pagadapati of the Duke Clinical Research Institute in Durham, who wrote an accompanying editorial, spoke with Laura about what the message to patients should be. Here's part of their discussion. Do you think that the persistence of benefit of weight loss to five years, is that something important that you can that you can go to patients with and say, hey, look, we have this data of this persistence? Do you think that that would be something that means something to patients and maybe they could say, oh, okay, maybe I should do this if that's going to happen? I do think so. I do think that that's kind of the silver lining, if you will, that it it does appear that when patients participate in these interventions on the whole, there appears to be a benefit in their risk factors, at least, out to five years for most of the risk factors. I do still think that it's important to let patients know that being vigilant about weight regain is important because as weight is regained after the intervention, those benefits start to decline. So I think it is a message of hope, but also one of kind of vigilance after the intervention that if we regain the weight, those benefits will start to decline. Mm -hmm. What this shows is after five years, maybe the benefits didn't completely go away. What we don't know is what happens in the longer term and what happens in terms of the harder clinical events. Right. Right. 
On the opposite spectrum from weight loss efforts, perhaps, are the highly complex and sometimes life-saving medical devices that go through the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's pre-market approval, or PMA, pathway to reach the market. Now, a new analysis published in JAMA Network Open this month has highlighted a link between how medical devices are brought to and maintained on the market and what that might mean for their safety record. Caitlin Cox covered this paper for TCTMD. As she explains in her story, it turns out that medical devices cleared under this rigorous regulatory pathway are more likely to undergo a recall if their manufacturers have, over the years, filed supplemental documentation with the agency to report changes in design, labeling, or production. What's striking for the Heart Sounds audience, I think, is that cardiovascular products, by far, made up the greatest number of these supplements as compared with devices in other specialties, and they accounted for nearly half of all recalled devices. As Jonathan Dubbin of the University of Missouri, Kansas City and colleagues explain in JAMA Network Open, the accrual of supplements over time has raised concerns that the modern device may bear little resemblance to its approved predecessor. Caitlin spoke with Kushal Kadakia of Harvard Medical School to get some outside perspective. He made the case for why clinicians should care about these processes. Folks may not realize that the supplement process is actually pretty new itself. Um, it only dates back, um, I want to say, as part of the JUFA authorizations in 2002, if I'm correct. And they were in use previously, but they're just they're formally codified by law. And so they've really increased over time. And there have been a couple of studies looking at these um, supplements and how, you know, now you see a lot more supplements per device. And so it's interesting in this study that's now coming out to see how having more supplements can be associated with a higher risk of a recall. But does an association actually mean that these supplements are causing problems? That's less clear, said Kadakia. What it does show, he said, is that tracking safety after devices are approved is critically important. For me, when you see this kind of uncertainty rising on the pre-market side, it's even more of an onus that we have more clarity on the post-market side and we're tracking things more efficiently. And so it really is a call for having um, more post-market surveillance or any device identifiers because maybe you could better track, you know, you're seeing these incremental changes through the supplements over time. You could better monitor those devices, look for thresholds of events to maybe consider are there safety signals that we need to investigate further. As I mentioned, TCTMD's Todd Neal and I were on site for the THT meeting in Boston last month. This was the second annual THT, and that's hosted by the Cardiovascular Research Foundation, which also publishes TCTMD. This was the first year that we've had part of our news team attend in person. This is a really exploding area of research in heart failure. I personally suffered some serious brain pain trying to wrap my head around different types of ablation being tested for things like pulmonary arterial hypertension and HEFPEF, as well as the progress and setbacks for things like interatrial shunts and left atrial pressure monitoring. Once back at his desk after THT, Todd took a deeper dive into something that a range of THT presentations had been probing from different angles, and that is so-called diuretic resistance. 
Getting patients with acute heart failure decongested continues to be a vexing problem, with many failing to shed enough fluid over the course of days, weeks, or even months, despite the use of oral and IV loop diuretics. Efforts to escalate medications are often ineffective and can create additional issues, including neurohormonal activation and nephrotoxicity. As Todd wrote, that has researchers exploring new, temporary technological approaches like pullers that reduce renal vein pressure and pushers that increase renal arterial pressure. Another novel system in early stage testing leverages the patient's own sweat glands to shed fluid. Other neuromodulation approaches entail things like cardiac pulmonary nerve stimulation, as well as systems for tailored diuretic dosing and self-administration of diuretics at home. I hope you'll check out all of our coverage of THT, of course, but for sure, search out the term diuretics to find Todd's feature on the many device-based approaches to decongestion. To wet your whistle, here is part of Todd's conversation with Navin Kapoor of Tufts Medical Center in Boston, who set the scene for why this field of innovation is so hot. The reason why I think this is becoming... um an increasingly important strike target for devices, drugs, clinical trials is several fold. One is our current strategies for decongestion are poorly defined, uh, meaning that we don't have rigorous algorithms for diuretic management. Access to knowledge is limited in terms of getting out into the community hospitals where many of these patients show up as opposed to the academic hospitals where they have a heart failure specialist on site. Another reason why this is a uh, important target is that right now we're limited primarily to drug-based approaches for decongestion. Um, The current guidelines recommend initiating diuretics, escalating diuretics, meaning going from oral to IV or doubling or tripling the doses. Uh, And if that fails, adding more diuretics is the next recommendation. So our guidelines are really quite uh, limited in terms of what they offer our clinicians for guidance. And this is why we're trying to get a better handle on how to optimize uh, diuretic selection as well as escalation. And then this is where the technology starts to come into play. Okay, let's swing the needle back again in the other direction with a story by Mike O'Reardon looking at what many are calling a pandemic of inactivity affecting the human species. The jumping off point for this story was a review published in the European Heart Journal led by Pedro Valenzuela of the University of Alcala in Spain. In it, he and his colleagues wrote about the myriad ways physical activity improves cardiovascular health, both for primary and secondary prevention. Given those critical benefits, there is reason to be very worried by the rising levels of inactivity in children and adults. Check out Mike's story to get the full picture. But for now, here's part of what Harlan Krumholtz of Yale University School of Medicine had to say, calling current levels of physical inactivity a central threat to human health. I think we're in a moment in history where we're about to be a large segment of the population with very low levels of activity. And advancements in technology have led to behaviors like binge watching and, you know, screen scrolling and and just computer time that, you know, is unprecedented in our history. And it's going to be good, as always, to encourage people to be active and to exercise. But 
I think we have a we have a bigger issue, which is not just trying to extend from historically where people have been at to try to get healthier habits, but to defend against what are seeming to be embedded and expanding trends that are leading even children, you know, to be doing much less activity and playtime than they were doing before. And so, you know, you only have to look around to see that, you know, there's just a lot more sitting time and sedentary time than we've almost ever had probably in the history of the species. And so this to me is could be a central threat to health. It's a, it's a threat to cardiovascular health. It also can be a threat to just general longevity of function. Hmm. Because, you know, as people, you know, get up in age and if they've spent a lot of their lives not moving. And even people who, who are committed to exercise, you know, may spend a lot of their day sitting in this remote work thing, you know, even probably exacerbated because we don't even get out of our chairs to get into our cars to commute, to get out of the parking lot, to walk to work. This is not the first time I've told you this, and unfortunately, it won't be the last. But despite all the great studies and sometimes the not-so-great studies, that I tell you about each month, many, many of them continue to enroll predominantly middle-aged white men. That is why a research letter published in circulation announcing the launch of a new cardiovascular surgery trial caught my eye. This one, the first ever, is only enrolling women. Roma women, as I learned from co-PI Mario Gaudino of Weill Cornell in New York, was designed to kick off earlier this month, after the ROMA trial reached its target enrollment. When PIs for that parent trial realized that it was on track to enroll just 15% women, they came up with the idea of this offspring trial that would exclusively enroll female patients. It would use all the infrastructure in place for ROMA with a built-in statistical plan to allow for ROMA women to borrow female patients from the original ROMA for its primary analysis. Gaudino explained some of the background thinking to me, and I hope you'll go read my full story on TCTMD. His hope, shared by a range of professional groups and societies that also signed on to this letter, is that this could be a clever solution to what is an entrenched problem of under-enrollment of women in trials, one that could possibly be extended to other underrepresented populations as well. I have interviewed Noelle Barry-Murs many times over the years, often about her long-time push to close the gaps facing women in research and care. She's also a co-author on The Circulation Perspective. This is part of our conversation. How, how can this change after 20 years of me doing these types of stories? Well, I think it's policy, and so to generate policy, it, it's advocacy and, you know, shining a bright light and just being persistent and not saying, oh, well, that's the way it's just always going to be. And, you know, and then it's that tipping effect. Yeah. Sometimes it seems like the world is going backwards right now for women. But if we think back 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, things were worse. That is it for Heart Sounds for April 2023. I hope you're already subscribed to our newsletter, which delivers all the cardiology news you need directly to your inbox twice a week, including breaking news from all the major cardiovascular meetings. 
I haven't had a chance to tell you much about Mike's coverage of the European Heart Rhythm Association meeting. This is our first time back at that meeting since 2019, and it had plenty of topics to keep Mike busy. Everything from AF ablation to conduction system pacing to calls for more EP involvement in structural heart procedures. Head to the conference tab on tctmd.com to check those out. Next month, as you likely already know, is a doozy for meeting travel. We will be bringing you news from the Sky meeting in Phoenix, as well as the EuroPCR, European Heart Failure, and European Atherosclerosis Society meetings and more. If you're presenting something next month that you think we should know about at these upcoming meetings, or any other for that matter, drop me a line. You can find my email on my bio at tctmd.com or message me on Twitter where I am ShellyWood2. Thank you to my whole team for the great work you do day in, day out. And thank you for tuning in to Heart Sounds. Do you love listening to Heart Sounds? Check out all new original content from TCTMD featuring Talking Points and Rocks Art Radio with Dr. Roxanne and Moran. All new episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud.